Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Art Director Mike Pekovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. How's it going, Ed? Hey, Mike. Now, as always, if you're among the three people that actually enjoy this podcast, please pop by our iTunes page and leave a nice five-star rating, and maybe even a comment if you have the time. We read them all, and we enjoy them all. Uh, now, without further ado, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Matt Kenny, who has some major news. This is Matt's major bench news. Hold on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen. This, you could be in for a wild insane and crazy ride i seriously doubt that <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know how am i supposed to announce this is this really news or i just announced hold on hold on let me do it again i'm going to use the breaking news music Please do. okay ready live from the fine woodworking newsroom uh matt's major bench news matt hold on always takes the guy on the scene a second okay yes that's correct edward <laughs> the scene here is quite exciting no uh I don't know if this is big news or not, but I was just I was just telling Ed and uh, others around the shop, uh, around the shop, I almost said around the office that uh, I was contemplating making a new bench, which I think this is uh, a big deal around here because of uh, one of the first things I did when I came to work at the magazine was the monster bench video or Matt's Banco Monstroso in Spanish, <laughs> right? Um, I actually get asked about the Monster Bench quite a bit. You know whether I'm still using it and whether I like it, and I both uh, am still using it and I do really like it a lot. Uh, so I guess it is something of a little bit of news if I would be making a new bench. That's kind of tough. I mean, your your name is on the Monster Workbench. A lot of people have made it. Plans are out there. You can't turn your back on that, Matt. It's really hard. It's uh, it's uh, it's hard for me to turn my back on. I'm not necessarily turning my back on the monster bench, though. But um, <coughs> excuse me. Well, what what sort of happened is is that uh, so we know this guy that lives here in Connecticut who has a barn. Okay. And in this barn, he has several thousand board feet of lumber, and it's all stuff that he cut down when he made his house, and he. Had a, a Sawyer cut it up, and the Sawyer was fantastic. I mean, everything is quarter-sawn. It's, it's brilliant. But among the pile of lumber that he has is uh, he had a lot of 12-quarter stock. I'm sorry, say that again? 12-quarter? 12-quarter. Three inches thick? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a whole lot. So I had been there once before, and he had some really big ash timbers on these collar ties that were probably 15 feet above the floor. So we didn't go out there and look at them then. But uh, we decided to go back, and I pretty much knew I was going to get those ash uh, timbers to uh, – I was like, those would be a perfect bench top. Yeah, definitely. With some big uh, ash timbers. They are. It's So I got three of them, and uh, it's far wider. Th- th- I mean, two of them are 10 inches wide, and the other one's about 8 or 9 inches wide. So it's wider than you need for a workbench top. Right. But I also picked up two oak timbers that are three inches thick, 14 inches wide. Those are only eight feet long. The other ones are more like nine to 11 feet long. So you're building a whole new bench or just a new bench top? Um, You know, I'm not sure. I might make a whole new bench. Hmm. Um, Good question, Mike. But I'm not going to get rid of the monster bench. Right. I'm pretty sure it's going to stay in my shop in some form or another. Uh, either as maybe I'll convert it to an outfeed table slash bench like you did in your shop, Mike. That's awesome. I use that just as much as my regular workbench. Mm-hmm. It's great. I mean, having two workbenches, it sounds decadent, 
No, absolutely it's necessary. Not. I already have two workbenches. This would be my third one in my shop. <laughs> do you have your original workbench still? The the pine one? I do not have the original workbench I ever made. I, I gave it to my neighbor when I left South Carolina for mm. Connecticut. But I do have I was gonna write a blog about it. Okay. Uh, I made that bench about ten years ago and it's funny because it's essentially the monster workbench, but made out of southern yellow pine and smaller. And uh it has a uh a twin screw vise that I made with wood. I made the wooden screws and I made all that stuff. Made wow. the nuts and everything, and uh, it's an ugly as sin bench, but it's fantastic. Would but, you do that again with the wooden screws? Did you like that vise? I did like that vise a lot. Um, and wooden screws have fantastic holding power. In fact, uh, John Tatro and I, uh, John's one of our art editors, uh, we're kicking around the idea of making some really big wooden screws, like two and a half inches diameter. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I think uh, we've I've got the means to make the, the tap and die for that. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we'll have, to, we'll have to do that all from scratch, essentially. Hmm. But uh, I'm thinking about that. And the only problem with a wooden uh, – a twin screw vise that has wooden screws mm-hmm. is that um, it, you if you put a garter – which is this little collar that in essentially, essentially attaches the um, the outside jaw, the movable jaw, to the hub or handle part of the screw. Yes. If you've got a garter on there, the the jaw moves in and out as you open it. Okay. But a lot of times they don't have that garter, and then you have to hold the or clamp the in some way clamp the stock in the vice jaw while you tighten down the screws. Oh, okay, right. You don't have the bicycle chain. You don't have the it's chain to do it. Yeah, so it's kind of, mm. that's kind of a pain in the neck with the uh, wooden screw twin screw vice, but it's I still liked it a lot. I mean, uh, it was much better than having a ca- only a cast iron face vice, mm. I think. Southern yellow pine, <coughs> pretty, uh, pretty hard stuff, right? Yes, it is. I This is weird because now a lot of people, uh, thanks to Chris Schwartz, talk about using southern yellow pine for their benches. But I had made this bench before that trend got going. And I made it from yellow pine because my dad's a contractor. Mm-hmm. And every house I'd ever seen growing up, all these houses I've been to with my dad, our house, everything down in the south, the construction lumber is southern yellow pine. And I figured, you know, in Florida where I grew up, it's like if they make a house from southern yellow pine and it withstands a hurricane, it's got to be good enough for a bench. Interesting logic. Yes. <laughs> so that's why I made it from southern yellow pine because it was cheap. It was something I could pick up at Lowe's. There, finding hardwood in South Carolina was really difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've heard the same thing in, in North Carolina. I hear the same thing. Like mm-hmm. when I was down with Greg Paolini, he says yeah. it can be tough to find – he orders it. He Greg orders his, his from out of the city, and there are places though in North Carolina. I think John Wall Lumber's there, and that's a good hmm. place to get lumber. It's a big full service lumber yard, but uh, it's not like Connecticut where there's people with wood misers and there's forty two lumber yards within you know five minutes of my house. It's not right. like that. Pennsylvania's not too far away for cherry. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I'm I'm probably going to make a new bench. It's going to be. Big and nasty. Bigger? It'll probably be bigger, yeah. Really? Oh, wait. Yes. How do you now how do you title that for a video <laughs> workshop? Uh I don't know. Who said I'm doing a video workshop? 
What's well potentially? What what what, <laughs> what would the what would the superlative no, above no, no, monster no, 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 no. be? Let's get back to this. But no, I <laughs> said nothing about a video workshop. Matt, uh, materials, materials. I will make another one out of hard maple if you would like. <laughs> I will gladly do that. Um, all right. So give us the stats on what you're thinking of for the new bench, the new monster workbench. So the top would be a. I'm not sure if I'm going to use the slabs and just have like two boards and edge glue them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if I'm going to cut them up and make this top like four inches thick, something absurd like that, like uh, Tetro's bench. Uh, but three inches is really thick already. And once you start to get too much thicker, uh, you start to run in trouble with uh, hold fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get around four inches, hold fast don't like to hold into the holes. Oh, anymore. really? I know if it's too thin, hold fast don't. Yeah. Good. I have like an eight quarter right. top, and really it's too thin to get a hold fast to really do its job. Yeah, and if you get too thick, you have uh, like uh, Lee Nielsen on their new hold fast recommends that if you have a four inch or thicker top, that you go on the underside and you, bre- you and make it yeah. one inch diameter holes instead of three quarter inch diameter. Oh, interesting. Holes. Okay. Ah. So I, the top will probably be in the neighborhood of three inches. I think it'd be really cool to have just these two big slabs. Uh, I'm kind of interested to see how that would work. Hmm. Uh, That's a little scary. Would they be sort of plain sawn slabs? Yeah, plain sawn slabs. But these slabs have been drying. They've been in this guy's barn for six years. Yeah. And before that, they dried for four or five years outside. They're dead flat. I mean, they're not going to move. And I'm not really going to do much to them to make them a bench top. So it's not like I'm going to be relieving tons of internal stresses. Right. I've had like an eight-quarter maple top out of slabs, and it got kind of humpy after a while. It was even killed dried stuff. I had to flatten that. Mm-hmm. I probably just flattened it once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every bench needs top needs flattening. Even my the, the monster work bench needs flattening every now and then. Hmm. So, uh, so that, and I've been thinking about... I wanted to do this with the monster workbench, but I was not allowed to do it. <laughs> I, I, the base, honestly, I just want I want to paint the base uh, and make it a four post, like my original bench, a four post base, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I want to paint it. Now I I've always wanted to paint it just because I thought it'd be a little shakery, and I kind of like that look. Right. But now I think I'm going to do it because uh, I have moisture problems in my my garage shop. And if things that are low to the concrete end up getting mold on them, hmm. and the right. paint would protect it from that. I had that problem with the workbench that I have now, that mold gets on the lower parts of it. Maybe instead of making a new workbench, just resell that stock and put a, uh, a floor in <laughs> put your a shop. a floor down. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Work on some drainage around your shop. Yeah, but ultimately it just comes back to I found this fantastic timber, you know, these, all these timbers, and I'm just, I just want to make a new bench just for the hell of it. Yeah. And uh, you're also on your way to a full-time four-season shop with no cars ever in it. Is this true, or is it still in the negotiation phase? I brought that up again last night. Wait, uh, you have cars in your shop from time to time? No. Oh. No. Uh, but it's not four-season. It's yeah. Right now, you know, it's been in the 30s in my shop recently. Um, yeah, I brought that up again last night, and for the second time bringing it up, my wife had absolutely no response. Okay, so that's <laughs> Just good. none whatsoever. Okay. It's better than yeah than her being upset. So it was an absence of a negative. <laughs> it's, it's right. It was yeah. I think I, I think I'm I'll be I'm going to do it. Uh, it's just that she you know we'll send compromise. a recording of this podcast episode you to your wife. Right. And yes. we'll, we'll see how how you show up. You can send it's like you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink. Yeah, you just, can send this to my wife but she's not going to listen to it. I just had an <laughs> inkling of what you're suffering through when in your uninsulated shop because my propane tank it ran out. 
And it was my shop was down in the fifties today, and it was chilly. I wish my shop was in the fifties. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, st- I mean, I still go down there and work, but it's pretty miserable. All right. Well, let's head on to the <laughs> first question of the day. This comes from Bob, and Bob writes. I'm planning on building a six-foot workbench top from laminated hard maple strips. I've noticed most people are cutting pieces the full length of the top. Are there any disadvantages to alternating full-length rows that are made up from smaller pieces, like, say, having a six-foot piece, then two, three-foot pieces, then another six-foot piece? I notice that butcher block countertops are often made more or less this way. Thoughts? My first thought is, why did you have to put rows in square in scare quotes? Well, because he he did it in quotation marks, and I gestured with my fingers. I did the quotation mark gesture because they actually are rows. Yeah, true, uh, true. So when so. you say butcher block, we're not talking in grain. We're just talking laminated strips of maple, like like rolling alley, yeah. maple, maple countertops, random yeah. sizes, right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on those countertops, they probably make them, I don't know, maybe like in 20-foot lengths or something. I bet, yeah. So yeah. it makes sense that they're multiple shorter lengths of stock. But if you're doing a six-foot bench, there's no reason they couldn't all be six feet. Right, yeah, because you can buy – I mean, a typical lumber is 8-foot, 10-foot, 12-foot. Right. So he could – I mean, if you could find 12-footers with no checking, you could get, cut some 12-footers, cut them in half, and there you go. But most likely your boards are going to have checking, so you want to get an 8-footer. Right. Cut off foot off each end to get rid of the checking, and there you got your six feet. So. Right. Now, it, it sounds like it's more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, I mean, I think if you get maybe if I found some like nine or ten footers, and when I'm at the lumber yard, I never know what I'm going to get. I'll plan on eight footers, and there's nine. I'll plan on right. nine, and there's eight. But so if there's anything longer than that, yeah, I could see you know it'd be a lot of waste, especially if it's too short to you know get your legs or or base material out of. I could see throwing in some shorter pieces in there. I would definitely stagger my full-length pieces with shorter pieces if I had to use well, them. Well, I mean, let's say if you buy, let's say for some some of you, it's not uncommon to find nine footers at a at a lumber yard, right. and with the eights or the tens. So let's say you buy a bunch of nines. You're making a six foot bench that leaves you three feet of offcut. Here's your legs. Oh, there you, know? you go. Right. So you're not really wasting that material. I I would recommend not doing that, mostly because it's gluing up a bench top is already. Uh, stressful and enough of a pain in the neck. So why add on this additional difficulty of trying to get these two three-footers to meet up and have a clean butt joint there Right. and uh, all that hassle? I just wouldn't do that. You know, you can easily get six-foot links. Fair enough. Uh, Well, let's let's go into question two. And this one, actually, it's not really so much a question as it is a follow-up suggestion from... Uh, fine woodworking contributing author Jeff Kaczynski, who had uh, written an article on building a uh, spray booth uh, set up for your shop. Yeah, it's like the monster spray booth. El, el spray boothal monstruoso. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff wrote in uh, with a follow-up tip for a listener who had posed a question on darkening cherry in our last podcast. And obviously, cherry will darken naturally with exposure to UV light. But uh, this fellow on our last podcast wrote in. He wanted to kind of speed up the process. Um, And Jeff wrote in, in show 24, you were giving advice to a woodworker about darkening cherry to achieve an aged color more quickly. I was surprised you neglected the sodium bicarbonate washing soda solution presented in FWW number 175. Quote, it works well duplicating the yellowish brown patina caused by photo oxidation from sun and air exposure. End quote. I've only tried this on test boards, not a whole project, but it does offer a dramatic effect on cherry. Um, I've never done this, but I have... I a light bulb went off when I got this email from Jeff because I've read, I probably read it in Fun Woodworking mm-hmm. like 15 years ago, 
Um, so that's I thought it was just kind of cool. I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, uh, washing soda, a solution of washing soda. Yeah, I never. I must have heard it because I've been here for that long. I just forgot about it. I love that type of way to um, color wood as opposed to dyeing and stains. I fume ammonia, I mean, fume oak with ammonia quite a bit for the same thing. But anytime there's a chemical reaction that colors the wood, you're not putting colorant on top of the wood. You're coloring the wood itself. So you can still get the depth and luster of the wood and impart some tones. In this case, it sounds like you're almost bleaching it out a little bit as opposed to making it darker. But um, Well, it's either, let me see here. Um, it, this is either an oxidation or a reduction process. I'm thinking back to my high school chemistry. Hmm. What exactly is, you call it washing sodas. You mean baking soda? I believe he might mean um, like Arm and Hammer. Arm and Hammer. I think that's what he's talking about, basically. That's mm. what I make my biscuits out um, of. Yeah, I think that's what he's talking about. I mean, again, <laughs> consult the article, and I'm going to put a link in this yeah. the, the blog post for this episode. I didn't get a chance to look back at the actual article, but I knew that I had read this before, mm. um, and I thought it was worth bringing up. Um, anyhow, um, well... You know what I you know? Yeah, I, go ahead. So I grew up in Florida, right, and I have a lot of friends that still live there, and several several of them work for NASA. Yep. So what I do when I want to speed up the darkening of my cherries, I send the project down to my friends at NASA, and they would put it on the space shuttle, and they would take it up and right. expose it to really? the stronger UV rays. Really? <laughs> yes. Actually, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> you could you could have 100 years of age in like three minutes. Yeah, I don't mean to be critical. I've never understood the need to speed up the darkening of cherry. It if you're impatient, you know, if you really like that look of something that's been sitting around for 15, 20 years, you know. Well, it does. It only takes about a year, I would say, for cherry to darken uh, and to look really nice. I make almost everything out of cherry, and it 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 darkens pretty nicely. But you know, I'm not. I'm just not that guy. So problem I have with cherry is I built an entertainment center, and the top I have all knickknacks on top of it. The top is cherry, and I have all you know frames and I have a little pair of Bose speakers on it and stuff. So you have those light spots. I have now. light spots all over the place. Yeah. And there's nothing, you know, and I, it's not really a big deal. Right. Who cares? But Yeah, I think if you're making it for yourself or a client that you know personally and you convince them, look, it's not going to look like this a year from now. Don't worry about it. But I've also done work where I've worked with interior designer representing the client. And the ones I've worked with tend to be very, very, very particular with the exact color and tone of the workpiece. And I know in that situation, I would be forced to dye cherry to get to that age color because they wouldn't take this sort of light salmon pink piece of furniture as a finished piece because it wouldn't match what they wanted. So in that case, I could see, well, if I have to speed it up, oh, sure. that might be a good experience. But doesn't, if, you, do if you speed up the color by staining it, mm. when it actually does darken? That's why I would rather try something like this rather than staining. Yeah, because doesn't the, I mean, the dark, the natural would it darken darkening. Would darken Yeah, what is it? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it's going to it's gonna change a little bit. Yeah, it's going to change. I had an idea, and I still want to try this sometime. I want to, um, because I love the way that, that wood weathers and turns gray outside. And I don't want to mimic that through paint or anything. But I've always wanted to build a piece, like, out of oak. But put it outside for a year, nail it to a tree, and then bring it in. And then, you know, outfit it with hardware and, and have it as an indoor piece, just as a different way to finish it, so. Well, that would be cool to have that nice, uh, the grain, you know, the heart, the early wood and late wood yeah. would wear differently and it'd have a lot of texture. And I don't want to go off topic and into the weeds for long, so I'll keep this short, but it brings up this whole discussion of like artificially, you know, using like washing soda to artificially darken your cherry. It brings up a memory of college when I was in 
school for photojournalism, we had a, a photochemistry class called Materials and Processes, and we had to do this project to figure out what types, if you were in the field, let's say you're like in Afghanistan or something and you don't have any developer and you have to process black and white triacs. Oh, I know what you're going to talk about. Eddie. Different ways to process film. <laughs> so we did coffee. Citric acid. Citric acid. And we also did, Matt? Urine. Urine. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> Moving on. You can do it. <laughs> Moving on. All right. Um, we are going to move into our first segment of the day, and that will be pins versus tails. Yeah. Crossfire section where... A couple of us go mano a mano in a battle over differing techniques and differing viewpoints. Up today, Ed and Matt. All right, so I'm going to moderate Mike here. will moderate and tell us when we're full of <clears throat> bull baloney. Yeah, because I don't really have a dog in this hunt. But uh, Matt and Ed seem to have a difference of opinions when it comes to finishing their workbench tops. Ed, you just or made d- a Well, workbenches in general. Okay. Uh, not necessarily just the top, the, the base, whatever. All right, so I don't, but Matt, please enlighten us because you are, we're talking about your Banco Monstroso cubed. Um, yes. So, what what's your feeling on finishing a workbench? I casually mentioned in conversation <laughs> earlier to Edward, which seems to have got him riled for some reason. I wanted to do a pins and tails. It's been a long time. Uh, that on my original workbench, I used boiled linseed oil. And that's like a very traditional finish for a bench, boiled linseed oil. Some guys get all crazy and they get out the double boiler and they put like an eye of newt and some beeswax, <laughs> some turpentine. Uh, they get some, uh, you know, uh, whale amber or amber gist or whatever it's called and they put it in there. And uh, so I just did straight up boiled linseed oil. But boiled linseed oil has got to be one of the worst finishes for anything ever. Because it looks great when you first put it on, but within a couple of years, it yellows, and it just looks muddy and cruddy and crappy. And I'm sure like half the people listening to it, so that would be 1.5, are really upset right now. <laughs> I must. I'm a strong. So, okay, go ahead. So, so what I was saying about my bench, which is, which is yeah. hard maple, yeah. is that – that's you. That's, oh, that's Asa oh calling gosh. us. It's Asa. Asa calling us. Wait, I should I should put him on the. I no, him on the no, no one wants. To. All right, so turn that off. I'm going to turn this off. Bye, Asa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I put it on my workbench, okay. and it's just it's it, it's yellowed to a very yeah. unattractive color, uh, to a distracting color, I think. And I was Much just like saying, my film developer. Uh, I was saying that on my new bench, I would, I was even considering not putting any finish whatsoever on the top, because I don't glue do glue ups on there, mm-hmm. and that's really why people want to finish their tops is to protect it from glue right. glue spills and stain spills. I don't use stains. I don't really do any kind of that stuff on my bench. So why do I need a finish? And I don't. And I was just saying to Ed that I didn't like the color. What about the end grain? That'd be the only thing mm-hmm. I'd really want to saturate that just to at least slow down some of the seasonal movement of the bench you could or you could uh i could just throw some anchor seal on there there you go <laughs> stealing my thunder that was going to be my one of my responses was like well I, I would still want to finish my bench to keep it from help keep it from moving a bit but more to my disagreement is that who cares if your bench yellows it's a utilitarian it's a tool i don't care if it's it could be purple for all i care i don't care all i want to do is protect it from you know from movement. That's mm-hmm. it. I don't care. I, yeah. c- I could be red 
green, blue, who gives all, a rat's I, behind? I, I don't think bull linseed oil really protects anything from movement. I'm not so sure that it does that. Maybe like it's oil. Said, saturating you're, the ingrain. You're, but you're keeping it from – you're inhibiting its ability to absorb moisture in the air. In you're the, in a moist shop. I am. Uh yeah, I don't really have – I think the real pins and tail here is that you think there's a pins and tails, and I don't think there's a pins and tails. That's just <laughs> so because – That's our disagreement. That's just because you always think I'm full of an unpleasant brown substance. No, no. I agree that it, it doesn't technically – it doesn't matter what color your bench is. You're right on that. Fun, functionally, it doesn't matter. But aesthetically, it matters to me. You want to go in your shop. You want it to be a pleasant place, right? Don't you? I Yes, I'll give you that. You want it be, to be an inspirational place. Yes, but a slightly yellowing bench doesn't really. Well, not for you, but for me. So, Ed, you're happy with you just made your bench. Mine turned a, yellow. Mine's turning yellow already. And you're happy with that. I could care less. Yeah. yeah, but it's turning yellow because I've been developing film on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you guys are, are both just a little bit off point because I do have the <sighs> ideal benchtop finish. Okay. Oh. I was walking through Sears about 10 years ago and there on the clearance table was a gallon can of Watco finish, Danish oil finish, which is really good for nothing except for benchtop finishes. I pull it out every six or eight months when I've scraped through most of the surface, wipe it on, wipe it off, done, put the can back on my shelf. It's well, going to last a, me another 150 it. years. Yeah. You recoat your bench pretty often then, huh? You give it a touch-up uh, daily. Mike does it daily. <laughs> it's a buffer. <laughs> <laughs> I scrape it down whenever, usually at the beginning of any project, if there's any glue. I do glue up on my bench. I don't put anything on it, so I'm always scraping off the little uh, mm-hmm. the little stick-on guys and stuff. And, you know, after a few scrapings, if it gets too... Uh, too worn out. Too worn out, coat of finish, done. How <laughs> often have you uh, had to flatten your bench top? Uh, I think just one after it was obviously when it goes in, you flatten it. And then uh, because I made mine out of uh, planks, you know, white right. maple boards, they did sort of hump after a while. And probably after the first winter, let's say, they move a lot. So I flatten it once then, and it stays pretty flat. I'm not crazy about it. I don't get out winding sticks. Yeah. I don't. My bench top is flatter than any floor in any house in Connecticut. Yeah. So I know, you know, I could get my my furniture absolutely square. You bring it into any house, and yeah, you want your bench. The guys that go on about bench tops needing to be dead flat. Or I mean, that's guys. If you're doing all your milling with mm. hand planes on your bench, you probably do need to be really flat yeah. because it gives you a flat reference surface. Yeah. Uh, but if most guys aren't doing that, so you just need it pretty flat. Yeah, pretty flat. I mean, the, the, my bench top isn't dead flat, and I don't really care that it's not. The furniture I make is still square. Yeah. And it comes out fine. Um, if you're on an assembly table, you would want that to be flat because there are sometimes, like if you're making some, like a, a cabinet with that sits on four feet or a chair, right? That needs to be flat because if it's not, you could get introduce some twist right. into it, right? So you uh, make like an MDF, like to, I could almost imagine using two sheets of three quarter inch MDF laminated to one another, big flat heavy. Service that's not going to uh, something like that, or you can make a torsion box, or a torsion box, something yeah. like that to, that you could guarantee would be flat. Or you could use your, you could put a piece of MDF down on top of your saw table, yeah, and do it there. That would be a big flat surface. Most saw tables are flat. Now I'm getting right. freaked out. You know how it is in woodworking. There's something 
you don't give a concern to. You don't even think about it. But then the minute you start thinking about it, oh, it becomes right. a problem. That's the obsessive compulsive gene. Yeah. So I'm going to go home tonight and make some winding sticks and check my <laughs> bench tops and make sure they're flat. Well, the reason all your furniture looks right is because you actually have a slight lean. Maybe that's it. So it all. Yeah, it <laughs> we never wanted to say anything to you that it all leans to the right. It's it's uh, it's actually notorious for us in, who shoot videos of Mike. Yeah, we have to tell him constantly, Mike, stop leaning to your left. You have to tilt the camera Stand to make up. Mike look it's like standing it's like up. It's like filming straight. a Batman episode. Um, just Mike's tall. climbing up the side of the wall. <laughs> yeah, right. The camera, the camera turns around. No, and you know we're goofing around too much. In the last one of the That's last right. podcasts, right. there were a couple of comments that people did not care for us to be goofing around. They just want the answers. All right, then in that spirit, I'm going to read the next question in a British accent. <laughs> Diomi Plotki of the Modern Woodworkers Association wrote in, I'm very close to purchasing a new bandsaw. I had assumed that a motor brake would be better than a foot brake, but after hearing Matt Kenny's comments on bandsaw brakes in a recent podcast episode, I'm realizing that I don't quite understand the difference between the variety of braking systems available. Could you explain the difference between a motor brake, a foot brake, and a foot brake with micro switch, known in Great Britain as a motor lorry? <laughs> Thanks, and keep up the good work on the show. So in a nutshell, we're talking about braking systems for bandsaws. What's the difference between a motor brake, a foot brake, and a foot brake with micro switch? Yeah. What's the deal? Yeah, people probably know Diami because he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, a couple Correct. episodes ago, right? Uh, Diami Plotki. So Diami, he's talking about a bigger bandsaw. Yeah, he's talking about a 17-inch bandsaw right? like yeah. yours. Yeah, 17 and bigger. Uh, the foot brakes are, are really important because you got a lot of mass and a lot of inertia in those wheels. And even after you turn the machine off, those suckers spin for a long yes. time and very silently. So Yes. Um, you can inadvertently put your finger into the blade or something. Really easily. So I think a foot yep. brake is uh, <laughs> really, really important when you get on the bigger bandsaws. And, but you want to get the right kind. Yes. The right kind of brake. Brake, yes. yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I looked into this some. I think you probably already knew this. I just had to confirm what I thought was correct, that – there's, so there's three different levels or three different types of brakes. You have the basic foot brake, which uh, you have to first turn off the saw right, and then step on the brake. And that brings the blade to a stop somewhat – not it's fast, but it's, a, it's slower than a motor brake. Yes. Yes. And actually we have a – it kind of freaks me out when I do it on the saw back here. And the saw that we have here at the shop is different. It's a motor – it has a foot brake with a micro switch. Which shuts off the motor yes. and stops the blade, especially if you stomp on it hard enough. Yes. <laughs> meaning, wait, meaning. So that if you step on the brake on our bandsaw well, We here, don't have to turn the big red no. off Correct. switch. You no. can just use the foot brake. You and step on the foot brake. I never knew that, actually. It turns off the motor and brings the brake mm. to a stop. Right. Mm. Yeah, that's, so that's a foot brake with a micro switch. Which is, if you want a foot brake, that's the foot brake you want. Yes. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I, I definitely. Yeah, I would definitely get a foot brake with a micro switch. Or what I like even more is the motor brake. Uh, you have a motor brake, and I have a motor brake. on our. We both have one on our bandsaws. Yes. And the way that works is that uh, there's, a, there's a on switch, an, off, an on button, and an off button. No, that's not. I shouldn't say it that way. It's a run button and a stop button. And there's a key that turns the motor off and on. And when you have the bandsaw cutting, you press the stop button, and that engages a electric brake 
on the motor, and it stops the blade within two to three seconds. Very quickly. Very fast, yep. yes. Yep. And as long as the stop button is pressed in or the the motor has been the, the machine has been stopped and the key is in the on position yeah. the brake is on and the blade will not move the wheels will not move uh, and you have to in a sense reset the hmm. the uh the run stop scenario to get it to run again hmm. in my case you have to pull the pull and twist the stop button right and some, it's uh, you do that to the on button or something. Bottom line, you turn the red, you push the red button, the blade stops really quick. Yes, thank you for right. breaking that down for Here's, us, Mike. That's what I have, and I like <laughs> it a lot. I love it. I mean, you have to have some sort of brake. Um, I think it's pretty much mandatory in a big saw. However, I think I probably like the foot brake with the little micro switch better because a lot of times as I'm feeding stock through and I – go to the outfeed side to maybe finish a cut, I'm a long ways away from turning the saw off, and I've got my hands full. So, yeah, I could, you know, put the stock down, walk around, shut it off, but a lot of times with the saw out in the shop, you're doing that, you're pulling the stock through, you can just step on the brake right there. You don't have to be anywhere near the on-off switch and shut the machine down. So I think that's one advantage to the the little micro switch. So I always have my shop assistants on the outfeed side. And then I'm always by the on-off button. Uh-huh. I just turn it off. Your shop assistants? My shop assistants, yes. <clears throat> is that your son? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, my six-year-old son is out there. <laughs> Listen, uh, can you get the dado, uh, stack dado set up on the table saw there? Yeah. I always put them on the outfeed side of everything. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, I can see if you are not in that infeed side position – it would be it would be impossible to turn the saw off, obviously. Right. So it's nice to have the foot brake. But I, in my own woodworking, I'm almost never in that position. The other thing that I would caution is uh, to check the owner's manual, check with the company that makes the saw before you buy it, and see what their recommendations are on operating a foot brake. Because I read a few places in doing research on this that supposedly some companies recommend not using the foot brake as a regular mechanism for stopping the saw. All right, using the switch first and then applying the foot brake is what you're saying. Yeah. Potentially. They just say let it run down. Let it run down. Just use it as an emergency. Oh, interesting. Yes. So that I would just double check that because I can't confirm that. With every saw that exists, so I, I would say double look okay. into that. All right. Well, the next question comes in from Tyson, and Tyson wrote, "Hi guys, love the show. I've read some scary things about wood dust. I have a workshop in my basement, and I have a toddler at home, so I'm very concerned about the dust I'm putting into the air. Uh, from what I've read online, it seems that there is no option for solid dust collection other than the Clearview system or building my own. Is there any cheaper system or methods available?" Cheers. First of all, what is this Clearview system this guy is referring to? Clearview system, it's a basically it's a cyclone dust collector. It's a cyclone dust collector that was I th- well it was it, I don't know, we don't need to get into all of the weeds on this, but basically it's a cyclone dust collector mm-hmm. developed and made off the recommendations of this guy named Bill Pence, mm-hmm. who's sort of like an inner uh, internet uh, one of the dust collection gurus of the net. Of the of the internet, yeah. So he's a guru and got it. So uh, they're still around, the, um, but it's, it's a cyclone system. Yeah. Okay. Bottom line, cyclone dust collectors 
work really, really well because they do a good job of separating out the vast majority of the dust and chips before they hit your filter material. And this is a this would be a two stage. This would be known as a two stage. Uh, right. The good news for Tyson um, is that you don't need a cyclone anymore anymore to get a good dust collection. In fact, we just are doing an article on getting really good dust collection on the cheap, basically taking your standard single-stage dust collector, which you probably recognize that. It's the sort of a vertical thing with a filter on top, the bag on the bottom, and a motor just off to the side. Uh, the trick to getting really good performance out of an inexpensive collector, first you want a finer filter because that's really going to save your lungs. Very important. The problem with that is finer filters are going to clog really quickly and uh, undermine the performance of your dust collector. Not good. So what you want to do is you want to, like the Cyclone, you want to capture as much of the dust and chips before it reaches the filter. And you can do that really easily. Uh, you may have seen them. You can get a special lid that goes on top of a trash can, which collects the chips first. You can also buy little mini Cyclones uh, that sit on top of a collector can, uh, which also does the exact same thing as Cyclone does. Both options are really good. Check out uh, the latest issue. In fact, our editor, Asa, wrote that and did a really good job with that, and it gives you some really good lower price options. And there are so, uh, I'll leave. I'll have a link in the blog post. Yeah, good. There are also, I mean, there's the, I have a, well, I don't know if it's, it's like a, it's sort of a single stage dust collector. It was also a double stage made by Jet. The, uh, oh, the Vortex. The Vortex. So it's still technically a single stage, but it does have a little interior baffle. That was another thing we show in the articles. You can just get a piece of MDF, you just sort of hot rod it, stick it inside your collector, and it acts to limit the Vortex, the you know, basically the dust storm inside the collector, yeah. keeping all the chips down in the, the bottom. The one you're talking about is another internet legend is the Thane Baffle. Another dust collection guru yeah, of the web. Uh, I can't yeah. remember if his name's first name is Paul, but his last name is Thane or Thine. Yes. And that's what the Thine Baffle, Thane Baffle is what we show in the article. Yes. Uh, and when the, 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 the Vortex thing is very similar to that that I have. Yes. And it, it really works. You like that? I love it. There's never really any dust in my filter, and everything goes into the bag. And the only thing I want to change about my setup is to get a, a, fi a better filter. Oh, finer filter. Yeah, finer filter. You actually notice you get stuff migrating out of the when filter. I, when I, when I uh, wang-doodle those paddles around the top, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that, I think that's a, a Willy Wonka term, a wang-doodle. Yeah, the um, little flapper bar. Thing. The little flappers. Um, sometimes I, it's like I think I'm seeing the dust sort of come out hmm. of it. So I think I need a finer filter up there. Uh, it's fun to find a finer filter. It is. Something like, well, I I think they, they need to get down to like at least 0.3 microns yeah, or something. Yeah, I think like 0.5 micron is the... 0.5 micron? Or is it 0.2? I know it was, used to be 2 micron was what you wanted. Now we're down below that. Uh -huh. Yeah, you definitely ought to be below that because it's the stuff that's like down that, around that 0.3 micron range that's the really... The finer the dust, the more dangerous it's Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right. Well, let's move into our next sem segment of the day, and that's going to be Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we go around and share some of our most recent boneheaded moves in the shop. Um, Mike, I'm going to begin with you. Um, Mortis Mayhem. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I love using uh, that term. It's so lame. I'm Mortis or Mayhem? Mortis Mayhem. Just together. Sounds like a... Um, or Mike. A roller derby name. 
Mortis Mayhem. I yes. like that. Yes. Um, so I'm making it a little traveling tool chest. Um, turned out great. It's got a couple drawers uh, down below a till for all my planes and stuff. And the, the drawers, I need some way to keep those closed during travel. So I decided to install half mortise locks, which really fun. It's a nice little project. Um, now, I know from past experience, let me repeat this. I know from past experience. <laughs> One more time. That the challenge with installing half mortise locks is that the little keyhole is not centered on the lock. It's off-center. So it's really important um, to lay it out correctly. It's really so easy the, the, to... So the mechanism you have to have basic... The mechanism has to be off-center so that the keyhole is centered in your drawer front. Exactly. And uh, the problem is it's a natural tendency is to flip the lock upside down with its flat face against the, the front to mark everything because mm. it's easier to mark it. The problem is when you do that, when you flip the, the lock around... The mortise uh, is offset and nothing fits and you need to start over again. So, like I said, I know this from past experience having gotten it wrong the first time I've done this. So, I've got my two drawers. Both drawer fronts were cut from the same board for continuous grain match like you're supposed to do. Very careful about placement. I mortise one drawer. Perfect. Looks great. Now I'm going to save myself a little bit of time. I'm just going to transfer the layout from the first drawer onto the second drawer how? By just butting them back to back so I can scribe the lines. Wrong. I ended up with a mortise, which was basically a mirror image of the way it should have been. I go to insert that lock, and the oh, keyhole's man. about a half an inch you know, away from where it should be. <laughs> just, oh. just not good. So, it's so like, you start from oh. scratch. So, so you had to remake the whole drawer? Just the drawer front. Oh, because yeah. it wasn't glued together yet. Right. So if if you look, and uh, this is going to be in the magazine in a little while, look very closely at these nice brown oak drawer fronts. The grain almost looks like it matches, but, but it not doesn't. quite. Yes, and that shall forever haunt me. Uh, but once again, Photoshop. you know, some lessons <laughs> you got to learn twice. Hopefully, this will be the last time I'll be learning so the, this lesson. The drawer fronts are brown oak. Yes. And the rest of the cabinet is made from... Is butternut. Butternut. Gorgeous. Gorgeous butternut. Yeah, it's... But did you know that butternut <laughs> is the country cousin of walnut? I did. Did you know that? I learned that it's the from, country from cousin Garrett of Hatt. Walnut. The yeah. country cousin. I like that. Garrett Hatt called yeah. it. But I butternut, it's, it's great because obviously it's a travel chest, so I wanted to keep it light. Didn't want to go with pine. Uh, butternut is actually almost as light as pine. But obviously the color um, and the luster you get from the grain, it, it can be a little bit fuzzy. But if you have a nice, sharp hand plane, um, it just leaves this gorgeous, glass-smooth, you know, real lustrous surface. So it's been fun to work with. It does dent early, easy, so keep your benchtop cleaned up and scraped. Well, that's but, good. Uh, it, gives it, it gives it character. A tool chest should yeah. have character. Yep. Dents yeah. and things. Um, oh, we talked about that. I apologize. I remember mentioning butternut a couple of weeks ago. Butternut. Sorry about that. My, I can't my parents believe it's actually, not butternut. Uh, <laughs> no, it's I can't believe it's not butternut. Um, I, I actually speaking of dents and dings and how they add to the appearance of something. We have a I, uh, my parents have a trestle table uh, that's got a very thick pine top. It's their breakfast table ever since yeah. I was a little kid. And shortly after they first had it made in the early '80s, I threw a temper tantrum. And my parents used to have these um, this silverware that each piece of silverware had a little like a little ball on the end of the handle oh. and I got angry in a fit and I grabbed like a fork or something and I just started banging it into the table 
And so, and I remember getting, I mean, I got a whooping for that. Is that why you're and, missing um, an ear? That's why, I'm, that's where the ear went from, exactly, <laughs> yes. Matt. And, um, you know, so I got in a lot of trouble at the time, but now it's really cool because every, my mother knows where every mark on that table came from. Like that, there's my temper tantrum. There's the time I dropped the, the can of soup or whatever on the, you know, and they've all filled in with that nice black goop. And it looks mm-hmm. like a, I mean, the table looks a lot older than I mean, it's like 30 years old, but it looks like even older than that. It's really it's kind of pretty. I told my mother I was distressing your furniture. It was, it was a very expensive finish. It tells a story. It's nice. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, mine, um, let me just start by saying that cutting half-blind dovetails in spalted maple is a real pain in the ash. Um, uh, so uh, <laughs> so um, I'm building this little cherry cabinet and uh, it has a little drawer on the bottom and I, I've had this spalted maple that I sawed from a log that somebody had brought into work years, a couple few years ago and it's been sitting I had sawed it mm-hmm. all and it's been sitting stickered back there for like three years um, did you saw it or did you saw I it? saw it I sawed it <laughs> um, but uh, and it's so I thought this is perfect I'm going to use it for the little drawer front and uh I cut my, you know, the tails in my drawer sides that are pine. You know, the, the sides in the back and the bottom are pine, right? And then I scribed everything onto the spalted maple, and then I started to, you know, excise the sockets for the tails. And it's it's just like it's the biggest pain in the butt because the spalted maple, by its very nature, wants to just <coughs> almost kind of crumble. crumble apart yeah. on you. Yeah, yeah, it can be very oh. punky, but even the, the punky, if, if it isn't punky, the wood itself can be fairly soft. You typically treat it. More the way you treat a pine, something that's going to crush very easily. Um, really sharp tools, really thin paring cuts. So not like maple at all. I'm just I just, uh, I I don't want to have anything to do with it at this point. I'm thinking yeah. of making a totally pine drawer and then putting a spalted veneer on the front because I just uh, oh that'd be cool. Too much yeah. of a pain in the rear. I mean, you could uh, use pine or maple. Uh, I'd probably you know as the drawer front. Cut yeah, through dovetails, glue it all up. That's exactly what I'm thinking of doing. And slap on, a, you know, like an eighth inch veneer. And then you're faking a half blind. Yes. Which works perfectly well. I know Paolini does that sometimes. Yes. Um, a half blind fakie. I used to do that on the skateboard ramp all the time. A half blind fakie? <laughs> on the half pipe. A half blind fakie on the half pipe. Now, I know for soft areas on spall to maple, <coughs> I think this is a, a trick turners use, is they just sort of saturate it with cyanoacrylate glue and it that's fortifies what, it yeah you can get a really I thin set yeah. i wonder if that would work prior to cutting like duct tail joints i don't know because that it's the, only going to penetrate so far well no, no it, like, you can get a thin set it'll go in really well, deep what yeah. if it would affect the glue bond though if you try to glue it later i wonder that and i also wonder mm. how you know you gotta always resharpen your tools but right. i just wonder what that would do to your tools yeah you know because when when the, when that stuff hardens it's it's really yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that was mine. Uh, Matt, do you have any smooth moves? Well, Jebediah, let me tell you what I – no, I uh, do. Uh, yes, I do have a smooth move. And this, right. is, this is one I was controlled into by another person. Who shall remain nameless. Yeah, so I make a lot of small cabinets in – and this is how I always do and miniature furniture. I understand. I make miniature furniture. Yes. Oh my goodness. Let's not get started on that. As opposed to furniture miniatures. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a whole story. Um, anyways, uh, and I, I, you know, I do dados for shelves and drawer dividers or vertical dividers too. If there's more than one drawer in a row, I cut the dado. It's a stop dado, and then I make my shelf for my divider. It's thicker than the dado. 
So I cut either a rabbit on once, you know, and, and there's a tongue and that goes in the dado, or I do in a sense two rabbits and make a centered tongue on the divider or the shelf and slide that into the dado. Right. And someone questioned uh, me about that and thought that it was too that was more trouble than it's worth. It's too hard to get that right. Why don't you just make the shelf or the divider the exact same thickness as the dado? So, a couple of good reasons not to do that, but go ahead. There's a whole slew of reasons not to do that. So, anyways, I'm I've got this little cabinet I had to make as a prop for a video that I shot recently. That's going to be an online extra about installing L-shaped knife hinges, offset knife hinges. So I have this cabinet sitting around. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to finish it. So there's going to be a little vertical divider in there uh, on the top row of drawers, and I said, you know, what the heck, I'll. I'll try this again. I'd done it before. So let me try it again. I'm a better woodworker now. Maybe I can get it nailed. So I make it. And first of all, of course, the thickness of the divider, you can. it's so hard to nail that exactly. Right. So there's reason number one not to do it. It's really hard to nail. And if you don't nail it precisely, there's going to be a little slop and stuff, and it's harder to get it to glue in square. Right. And you can't nail it precisely <laughs> off a machine because you need to plane it or surface it afterwards. Yes. So you got to start fat and then plane it. Right. Exactly right, which is tough to do. So that's reason number one. So then you slide it in and you got to notch it so right. that it, because it's a stop dado. So you slide it in there. And the trick I learned is that you take your marking knife, you put the flat side down yep. and the bevel side up and you mark around it. And that shows you precisely where to go. But the problem with that is, is that the, you cut a little V notch. Because of the bevel. Right. So really, it's not really marking where you want to go to. And invariably, what I do, because I'm stupid, is I always go to the bevel side of the cut line. And so you end up with notches that are too big, and so there's gaps, uh, gaps there. Right, right. So it's really hard to nail that precisely. I'm sure a super accomplished furniture makers don't have a trouble with it. I don't know. It's... It's one of those impossible joints. And North Bennett Street guys will say, we'll mark it with a pencil and then scribe a line adjacent to the inside of the pencil. Um, yeah. yeah. But, but so what? But what's easier is to do uh, – for the vertical dividers, what I do is I do a rabbit on both sides of the divider so you get a tongue down the middle. Yes. Or if it's a shelf, I usually do a rabbit on the top so there's a tongue on the bottom and slide that into the data. Right. Um, and then when you have that, which is easy, because if you make the dado a quarter inch deep, let's say, boom, it's a quarter inch rabbit. Right. It's so easy. You're just aligning the notch to whatever your dado or your rabbit. Yes. Yep. And then you've got that shoulder there. How, where, how far do you, you pare down and cut down, cut away waste to the shoulder. Right. It's super mm-hmm. easy to nail that precisely. So, uh, that's what I get. All right. Yeah. Um, well, before we move on to the next question, uh, I wanted to solicit some help from people who are listening to the podcast. So in about a week and a half, uh, I'm setting off to shoot a video series with Phil Lowe. Now, Phil is a, a period, a very accomplished period furniture maker uh, outside of Boston. And, uh, you know, if you, folks who don't know of Phil, um, you know, not only does he build his own stuff, but I believe he does restoration work on, you know, pieces that are valued in the six figures, well into the six figures, I yes, think, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He's so, big time, uh, big time work. So this guy's got, uh, 
pretty interesting background. Um, and I'm basically soliciting questions. And if there's anything that folks would be particularly interested in hearing about from a guy like Phil, um, go ahead and post uh, post them in the comments section of the blog post for this episode of the podcast. This is episode 25, um, Shop Talk Live 25. So anything you want me to ask Phil or talk about with Phil, let me know. Um, yeah, they could look at his articles in the magazine to get an idea of what he does. Yep. Uh, also, but Phil went to North Bennett Street School, then taught at North Bennett Street School. And I think mm-hmm. he maybe ran the program there. I'm not sure about that, but he definitely taught there. Now he still makes furniture out of a, sort of a one-man shop, but he also has a school the Furniture Institute of Massachusetts, and it's a he offers a two-year program there, uh, sort of like North Bennett does and College of the Redwoods does. And uh, he also does weekend classes, you know, night classes, but he also has full-time students that are there. So that sort of gives you an idea of uh, his experience and also maybe helps you figure out what types of questions you could ask him. Yes. Almost anything, almost anything. There you go. Phil knows machines really well. He knows hand tools really well. He's an expert at uh, period furniture. Uh, he, he owns a sailboat. You can ask him about sailing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, next question. Um, we'll, we'll go out. We'll sail out of that one. Uh, Alec, oh, that was terrible. <coughs> Alec wrote in with several questions concerning wood movement. Um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some things here. He's currently constructing a mahogany bookcase that requires a top side molding, which allows for movement of the case. He's read that he could glue on the first few inches of the molding, but not the entire length. How do you attach the other end? In another article, he read about using elongated screw holes to attach moldings like this, even nails. Um, Alec also asked the same question concerning how to attach drawer runners that are going, uh, I assume, across the grain. Um, Sure. Can can you use nails, a bit of glue? Uh, What are the best practices for these techniques when you're attaching a piece of wood uh, to another one in you know, perpendicular to the grain. Juicy um, fruit. That's it. Moving on to our last <laughs> question of the day. <laughs> it's sticky but pliable. Okay. I don't remember that from the commercial, but I'll trust you. He's right. Uh, on those cross-grain glue-ups, you've got to somehow leave a way for those, that the case side with the grain running vertically to expand and contract front to back with the seasons while that molding going across the grain is standing still. Uh, he mentioned a screw in an elongated slot. That's a great way to go. You glue the front portion of it. And is you can typically glue more than what you think you can. You don't need to do just a couple inches. You can glue, I'd say, probably four to six inches without experiencing any <clears throat> cracking or anything in the case side because uh, the yellow glue is fairly pliable. So, um, And then a screw from the inside through a slotted hole into the molding should do it just fine. You can get really fancy. You can even make these little dovetailed keys, segmented keys that you screw on and then with a dovetail slot in the molding. Chris Bexford wrote a great article the on that. The metal ones. He used metal ones. No, he actually, he actually wouldn't, keys, wouldn't yeah. dovetail keys that you screw on. Okay. I, I do remember that. So yeah. here's how I learned to sort of deal with that. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I learned furniture from a period guy. And you just make a look. So you make this like crown molding doodah that goes on the top of your cabinet, right? And that so is, P-Paul makes this little crown molding <laughs> that goes on the top of his cabinet. Right, and, right. He takes, and he takes, and then he operates his wang doodle. Okay. No. Uh, so that's like a separate 
piece of like on my tool cabinet. That's a separate piece oh. that fits down on top of the upper cabinet, and mm-hmm. there's glue box on the upper cabinet on the top of it, and so it just kind of fits down over those glue blocks, and it's not actually attached to the cabinet. Right, it's so a cap. You, it's a separate sort of frame and panel. Right, that sits on top. That's an awesome way to do that. Yeah, yeah. and so, but I guess there are pieces you would make where you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in of course, case, then when you die, and your kin. Go to move that piece of furniture. They don't know that that thing's not attached. You know, as 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 hard it is for me to make a new workbench because of, because I made the monster workbench, and I don't want people to think that I don't like it because I love it. It's even harder for me to stop using that tool cabinet, and I've sort of outgrown it because the the guy that I learned from gave me all the lumber for the tool cabinet, gave mm-hmm. me all the hardware, spent time with me, let me use his shop. And it's like I can never stop using this thing because it'll be a betrayal. No, 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 no. No, I don't. Th- yeah, no. It's a, absolutely. No. Those are the best pieces of furniture, anyhow. The ones that you have a sentimental attachment to. Right, but can I stop using my tool cabinet? No, no, I can't. Absolutely not. <laughs> can never stop. No using way, it. man. It's a nice piece. Take it in the house. Can't you fit a TV I, in there or anything? No, I, I, I kind of wish I could get the 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 upper cabinet tool component part out. You know, mm-hmm. all the all the pitching holes and everything. Right. But I can't. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do That's with right. it. You have all those pigeonholes, so you could put like a writing desktop in there, and then you, you could put fold that down, there. and then you have like all your correspondence in the pigeonholes, <laughs> and you'd be with your quill pen at night, like Martha, yes. my dearest. I have just yes. completed the most incredible. Exactly. You know, yeah. no, this is music. this is yeah, what you I, need uh, to do. Could you please come to the village <laughs> next week? We <laughs> need to crank up the computer. Take the piece, <laughs> put it in your daughter's bedroom. Don't say anything about what needs to go in there. And she'll fill it fantastically. Every cubby will be filled with, like, the perfect item. And it will surprise you. But you'll say, oh, of course. I made this little wall cabinet once. I needed something to do while I was at a Lee Nielsen hand tool event. So I made this (coughs) little ash cabinet. It's like a shelf with uh, drawers beneath it. And I did that because I was going to make drawers while I was there. So I had this nice air-dried apple, and I may use that for the drawer fronts. And then it's really delicate, tiny little pulls that I turned, right? So I make this, and I'm like, I don't have anything to do with it. So I hang it in my daughter's room. And I come back within like an hour or two, and it is all full of yeah. calico critters clothing. For You know, I'm <laughs> just like, go. there you go. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, um, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store, and every week I like to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement up there. Uh, Main Man 317 wrote in to say, Keep it up. I've told everyone I know that is interested in work- woodworking about this podcast. I've often picked up the print magazine when out and about, but now I'm going to subscri- subscribe to both online and print. That is not a plug, ladies and gentlemen. That is how it reads on the <laughs> iTunes page. Thanks, Main Mike. I've probably just chased him main away, man. though, with my atrocious main accent imitation. <laughs> what was that what that was supposed to be? <laughs> I think so. Um, from Mo Says Moo, I'm catching up and hope I never do on Podcast 12 and learning a lot. Most helpful for me is that I've learned that I am not alone with my mistakes. I always thought I was stupid, but now I know that mistakes are a part of the craft. Mo Says Moo, I can only repeat the old adage that states what separates a good woodworker from a great one is knowing how to repair your mistakes. Yeah, we should talk about that in the future. I believe that 100%. I've heard that. That's yeah. not the only thing that separates a good worker from <laughs> no, a great it. one. That's it's it. not. That's it? No, it's oh, that's not. It. Oh, that's it. Do you want to do another pins versus tail, Matt? We could, yes. And finally, 
from Jointer46. Just discovered this podcast and find it extremely informative. As a wood geek, I love everything about the podcast. Keep up the good work. Ed knows more than Matt. Just oh, kidding. I just added that. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. Uh, we'll be back again in two weeks on February 22nd for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. 